Anne-Marie Pollen Campbell, you're a spiritual director. In your doctorate, research focused on the interface between Christian spirituality and psychology. And you're from South Africa. What part? I'm from Johannesburg, Pat. Um, I've lived there my whole life, uh, apart from some time doing some studies in in the UK in spirituality. But I, I live in Johannesburg, in the centre of the city. It's got a reputation for being a very violent place. Is that true? There is a lot of uh, violence and crime in, in the city. Uh, it's not an easy place uh, in that sense. Um, but there are also a lot of very good people, <laughs> I suppose, like anywhere. But there is, there is really a legacy there of uh, a lot of pain and, and there is a lot of violence. Is that a post-apartheid with. legacy, would you say? Very much so. And I think that, you know, 20 years on, more than 20 years since the first democratic elections, which were in 1994, we're really still struggling very much with a traumatised society um, and with the effects of an apartheid system that really eroded people's sense of dignity and who they are as people. Um, And we are still really trying to come to terms as a society with so much of what happened in the apartheid era. I think that's an interesting point. People might look and say, my goodness, it was, was it that long ago? It's 24 years, nearly 25. And yet apartheid was really embedded in the whole of society. And when you have a system like that, I mean, it affects not only the people who were oppressed, but also those who were doing the oppression as well, because it, everybody becomes part of the problem. Very, very much so. Um, I grew up in South Africa under apartheid. I was still at school for most of the time, um, completely unaware in some senses of the evil that was going on and the the system that I was part of Um, until I got to university where I was part of the University Catholic Chaplaincy. There were Jesuits who were involved there. And that really opened my eyes. We did a lot of work on the interface between faith and life and faith and justice. And it was really around the early 90s that I arrived at university and was exposed to the reality of my own situation in my own country. Um, And I think now we have a situation in which many people are having to really grapple with and come to terms with what happened in South Africa, and that we were part of that, whether we were conscious of it or unconscious of it in some ways at the time. Um, and there's a real a, a burden of guilt that people carry. But there's also a sense in which there's, there's sometimes quite a bit of frustration from the younger generation of white people in South Africa, for example, who weren't around during apartheid, who feel as though they're carrying the blame for something which they were not directly responsible for. Yeah, that's, I think that's very interesting because... That does leave a, a, a legacy that, you know, you weren't directly responsible for it, yet somehow, as a white South African, mm. do you feel addressed by it, that, there, you, that there's something that yes. you're called to do, and yet guilt can be crippling and not helpful? I think it's a very complex issue. I mean, I think the first thing is that we are only now starting to become aware of what we talk about in terms of white privilege, the fact that just by virtue of having been born white... Even now, post-apartheid, we are born into a context in which we have historically more access to education, more access to opportunity, more access to to all kinds of things which have advantaged us in a way that many black people, most black people, have not even now had access to. And yet I think it's about how do we come to a place of healing and reconciliation. And we're very much in the Jesuit Institute where I work 
trying to to work in projects around that and even in the spiritual direction work that I'm busy with it's incredible the kind of stuff that happens when we train people from different parts of the South African community as spiritual directors and they get to share their stories and to talk about what it was like and what it is like to be black or white or coloured, what we call so-called coloured, in the South African community. And there's an amazing sense of the growth that happens when people are able to honestly share the reality of their experience with one another. Looking at yourself in that situation, you're a spiritual director, you're white, and somebody comes to you and you have to listen to what they went through while you were merrily bouncing off to school and doing very nicely, thank you. Do you have to do work on yourself, first of all, to deal with how you're affected by what they're telling you? Because what, in your name, or at least in the name of the white people, was done to, say, the black community or the coloured community? Very much so. You know, I spend most of my time training people as spiritual directors and also training supervisors uh, to help spiritual directors to reflect on their own personal experience of what's being triggered for them as they listen, and for myself too, what's being triggered for me as I listen. I had an experience not that long ago of listening to somebody who had listened to a person who'd been severely traumatised under apartheid, who someone in her family had been tortured and gone missing and had, had died. And as she shared that pain, the spiritual director really struggled because she was realising, as she said to me, that it was realising that it was what my people had done to her and having to really kind of have a safe space where she could talk about how that impacted on her. And not just talk. It's important to talk sure. and to be aware and to understand. I'm interested in, is there something else mm-hmm. in the whole area of spirituality because your area is that interface between spirituality and psychology so in the psychological approach we're talking it out we're we're revisiting it looking at it again does the spiritual dimension bring anything different then to the talking it out the sharing the supervision i mean i think one of the things that's very deeply impacted in all of this is our image of god and our image of ourselves. Because in a sense, in a very traumatized context, people's image of God can become very distorted. And I think that there is something about helping people into a place of prayer. And we would use very much the Ignatian frame because that's that's the training background that I come from. And one of the ways of prayer that we found incredibly freeing for people is actually praying with the imagination, imaginative contemplation. That somehow opening up that as an imaginal, not imaginary, but um, an imaginal space in which one can allow a new image, a more helpful healing image of God to break in can be profoundly healing for people. Um, I did my um, my doctoral thesis around some of this and you know I work as a psychotherapist and and when I work with people in that uh, way it can often take a very long time for healing to happen I've noticed myself and when we we journey with people also on the spiritual level it seems as though somehow as God breaks into that experience very often People are met at their place of deepest need and hurt by the God who knows them intimately. And an image comes, uh, a way of seeing God, 
that also shifts something about the way that that person experiences themselves and gives them back a sense of their own dignity, their own worth, their own value. Can you just say a bit to me about the image of God that's affected by people who are traumatic? I mean, what kind of image does that do they tend to project then about God and, and themselves? I think they, they tend to be quite uh, negative images of God, an image of God who either is a very abandoning God and neglectful God or or an image of a God who is quite punitive. It's also quite interesting how many women in particular sometimes struggle with a very masculine and a, a very oppressive kind of sense of, of God. Um, that isn't always the case, but, but sometimes. And it's almost as though opening up a space to engage imaginatively with the scriptures particularly uh, sometimes kind of creates a chink in that in that space for for something different to, to emerge in a way that's often very surprising. So some, give me an example. I mean, would somebody take a scene from the gospel and imagine themselves in it? And are they guided to do that or explain that to me? So generally, we might offer somebody uh, a passage with, uh, for example, Jesus engaged doing something with someone. I always remember, for example, the, uh, the story of uh, Martha and Mary, where uh, Jesus goes to the house of Martha and Mary, as, as many people will know, and uh, Martha is busy in the kitchen with the dishes and the washing up and the preparations and all the rest of it. And her sister Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. And when Martha comes in and gets quite frustrated with this, you know, Jesus is saying, well, Mary has chosen the better part. Let her, let her be. Let her listen. And I always remember an experience of someone praying around something with that. And this is something she's, she said, I can, I can share with no, no problem. And she was so frustrated and she was saying, Jesus, you have no idea what it's like to be a woman, and you have no idea how it's like to be a woman raped. And as she was looking at Jesus there, he became a woman, and she saw him on the cross saying to her, I do know, I know what it's like. And it was a profoundly healing moment for her because she had been someone who had experienced enormous trauma in her life uh, as a woman living in, in the South African context. And do you believe people can be healed, really healed of that kind of trauma? I mean, is it a, a wound that's always there, ready to be poked and sore again? Or is it that we come to terms with it and learn to live with that in a way that we're at peace? What, what really changes as both, you're both a psychotherapist mm. And somebody working in spiritual healing? It's a very interesting question. I think that um, it depends a bit on the person and on their situation and, and what kind of experience they might have in prayer. I think that, you know, from a psychological point of view, often it takes a lot of time for people coming to terms with something, realizing the impact that it's had on them, uh, having the space to grieve, to mourn, to to cry, to let the feelings be there, a kind of cathartic sense. And then a time of reintegration and making sense of their lives in the wake of what's happened to them. Where I think spirituality can really play an added role is that I think that in that reintegration process, in that making sense of what has happened, in it becoming sometimes a meaningful, redeemed experience, I think that's where the deepest healing happens. And I think that that tends to happen from a spiritual place. So that the psychology aspect takes a person so far and can do a tremendous amount of that initial healing. But I think that to come to a place of, you know, perhaps never complete healing, but pretty much almost there, 
I think that it's often an experience in a deep place of prayer. Often it happens on, for example, an eight-day retreat. People go away for a silent retreat for some really good quality time with God. And in that space, there is time to go deeper and to really allow themselves to soak in the love of the one who loves them unconditionally, who has created them, who knows what they need at their deepest place of, of pain. You know, the way people say forgiveness or getting over resentment is a really important part of healing. Mm-hmm. Is that something that's significant as well? I mean, that, you know, it's really hard to forgive somebody who's raped you mm-hmm. or tortured you or mm-hmm. whatever. Most people would find that very difficult. Is there something about getting the grace to do that which frees you because the resentment only ties you mm-hmm. up? I think so, definitely. And I think that's that's a process that can only come from grace, from it can only be is a gift of God. And one can't force it, one can't. It's, forgiveness is not something that can be forced or rushed, particularly where the hurt is, is really profound. But I think that, you know, Ignatius has this thing about when you cannot pray for a particular gift, we pray for the desire to desire to desire to pray for that gift. And sometimes it's, it's quite a number of steps back that one has to go. But I do believe that, that a great part of that healing is coming to a place of being able eventually to to let go and to forgive. The problem then becomes, if the image of God is the issue, Mm -hmm. uh, very often with people who've been traumatised, and it's a punitive God or an abandoning God, how do you encourage people to go to spiritual direction? You know, it's much Mm -hmm. easier to go for, say, well, I'm really unwell, I need to go and talk to Mm -hmm. somebody. But the last person I want to go and talk to is a spiritual director because God has abandoned me. You know, how how do we overcome that, that they get in the door in the first place? Mm, That's a very interesting question. I mean, from my own perspective, I find that I'm also a trained life coach. So an awful lot of people who are in that position come for coaching, and we don't talk about God for ages and ages. Um, But because there is so much a sense of people looking for greater meaning and purpose and trying to resolve trauma, it's interesting how almost inevitably at some point where there's a a real trust built up between us, they themselves will start to ask those deeper questions. Um, And very gradually we begin to talk about things of faith, uh, issues around around God. So often it kind of comes in around the back door in a way that that people come to to what feels like a a secular space. And and sometimes the same is true in the the psychotherapy or or counselling side of things, that that for a long time that's that's where it's at. And eventually people would say, there's more here, there's there's a deeper place that that hasn't been dealt with. I try and keep my psychology and spiritual direction a bit clear, what I'm doing. So I might refer them then to somebody from a spiritual direction side of things. But very often people won't initially choose to come for direction but I think we also have to be a bit creative we have to start thinking how can we invite people to reflect on deeper questions you know the spiritually seeking and people are often scared off by church if they've had a negative experience of church but they're quite open to the spiritual the oft-worn cliche now I'm not religious but I'm spiritual but people mean something by that because They have been wounded. I mean, many people here, for example, in Ireland have been wounded by the child sexual abuse scandals and their cover-up, which is probably even worse for people 
I think there's a deep wound and trauma here in Irish society around that. Then the statistics here from Savvy, the, the sexual abuse and violence report, an independent report, one in four people have been sexually abused in some way. One in four, I mean, it's mind-boggling. And then you also have, I think, and I speak with a northern accent, I'm from the north of Ireland myself, there is continuing trauma in the north, and I think unaddressed trauma from what has happened for 30 years, a legacy of 30 years of violence that has not been addressed as trauma. So in terms of spiritual direction and counselling, one would expect that that's going to turn up on the doorsteps of spiritual directors here. How to handle that? I mean, you raise gently the way of spiritual direction, but then for other people, the spiritual director may need to raise the possibility of counselling and to know those boundaries there. That's difficult sometimes. You know, it's a really key thing. I wrote a paper recently about this issue because we have so many people coming, for example, on an eight-day retreat. And the way that I was, you know, trained in a, in a very different context was, well, you want to be sure they're not suffering from trauma before you take them on an eight-day retreat. Well, if we use that criterion in, in South Africa, we'd have to say no to 90% of the applicants. It just, you know, people are traumatized. That's what we're dealing with. And the resources, particularly in the public sector, are not there. We have one psychiatrist for every 475,000 people. There are not spaces in the psychiatric wards of the general hospitals for the people who need the counselling. It is absolutely horrific, the mental health issues that are going on in South Africa, because we do not have not even a tenth of the number of trained people that we need to be providing services. There are are psychologists, psychotherapists working in the private sector, very well trained, but because they are charging medical insurance rates the majority of the population simply would not be able to afford a single session. So there is no way that they have access to that. So certainly we would want to, in an ideal world, refer people for therapy or for counselling, and where we can, we do, uh, where they need it. But very often you will find a situation, for example, uh, we go to the township places where which are still predominantly black and very under-resourced, And we run group processes and retreats there where people share their faith story and their life story. And in sharing that story, they can be talking about the most unbelievable trauma upon trauma upon trauma, cumulative stuff that's been going on. You know, having been raped on three or four different occasions, having been witnessed to murder, having lost family members, huge amount of trauma. And people's, you know, interestingly, are more happy to talk about it in a group than one-on-one. And that goes back to the early days of apartheid where people were interrogated very often one-on-one. And so there's a great fear of being alone in a room with one other person, particularly someone that you don't yet have a a relationship with. And so it's interesting that in a group people feel safer to process it. And so ideally one would want to refer pretty much everyone in those groups for counselling or for for psychotherapy, and there is no way to refer them. So we have to make sure that we train our spiritual directors as much as we can, also in basic counselling skills, to remember what they're doing, that they're being spiritual directors and that's their primary role, but to be able to contain real distress. And also we then have to debrief them and to give them opportunities for supervision because they carry vicariously a lot of trauma that they're exposed to in listening to those people who are sharing in that group. And many people come. So, for example, these parish 
retreats that we run. We run over the course of a week, and people come every single day, every evening, and they go to work in the, in the daytime. So it's, it's similar to what you would call accompanied prayer weeks in this context, but in groups. And you'll get about 180 people coming on a week like that. And as the week goes on, they tell other people, and other people join. And so you might start out with 180 and end up with 250 by the end of the week, because every day people bring other people who they say, come, this is interesting. And do they tell their stories in that group setting? How is that constructed? Um, Well, we have a number of facilitators every time we do a parish retreat, and they split them into smaller groups. The groups are not actually very small, because they end up being about 15 people in a group which in a UK context is rather too big for a group. Uh, You know, you would think of the ideal size being six to eight or whatever, but that's just how it is, and it works fine. And there's also not the same kind of time constraints, that people are very happy to sit for three or four hours listening to each other's stories, and they will cry and cry and cry as they share. How do they start it off? How does that dynamic and that safety, Mm. you know, that people feel safe enough, how how is that built up in such Mm. a short time? Well, interestingly, being a very musical and oral kind of culture, usually we start with singing, which connects and bonds people in a very interesting and and strong way. And then we would usually tell the story of St. Ignatius and his life and his, his experience, and then invite people to into an exercise of reflecting on their experience. And then we invite anyone who would like to share to do so. And it's interesting because as one person shares their story, it gives permission and safety for the next. I mean, obviously, we also talk about the confidentiality in the group, you know, the honoring of people's experience and all of that. But it's remarkable how quickly, because I think the pain is so much there that just being offered a space, it just is so ready to come out and to be shared. People are longing to tell their story and to have it heard. And that is really a a profound experience. And I think the fact that it's in a faith context, you know, the fact that there is prayer beginning and ending, and there is a sense of almost leaving or putting that story at the foot of the cross as much as into the group. We give people, for example, little holding crosses made of, of wood, that they take away with them. And there's a lot of use of symbol and ritual, because I think ritual is very helpful for people in terms of holding and processing their experience. Yeah. And so there's a, a time of washing of hands, um, which is part of the Sotsaletsa process. There's also the, um, the telling of the story of the Ugandan martyrs, which is a particularly powerful story in the context of Africa. And that's an experience of people who went through enormous struggle and pain and I think that that also connects somehow with people. From another country. From another country, yeah. yeah. It clearly speaks mm. to people. So what for you personally, Anne-Marie, you're working both as a psychotherapist, working in spiritual direction, in your own personal life then, because you're going to meet with a lot of trauma and pain, mm. and you're a white mm. woman in the middle of it, so you have to deal with all that and deal with how you're feeling relating to the people who are coming to you. What sustains you? One thing that, you know, that comes to mind would be the network of of relationships around me, community of of family and close friends and places where I can really, you know, I don't have to pretend I can, not that I have to pretend anyway, but I can really be fully myself and fully relaxed and and have some real um, spaces of, of deep sharing and conversation and fellowship, that kind of thing. I also find my own prayer life sustains me. I'm very, I've just been on a, on a wonderful retreat at St. Bino's in North Wales, and I go on retreat every year, uh, sometimes twice in the year, a shorter retreat one time and a, an eight-day retreat at a different 
place. And I really find I need that. I need that space to, to go deep, uh, to be able to do this kind of work. Um, and I also have my own supervision and my own therapy and my own spiritual direction, which are, are very important for me to be able to do this work without burning out. Because I think that it's very taxing. And when we are when I'm encountering people day in and day out who are holding enormous amounts of pain, who will really sit and cry and cry and cry. Sometimes I mean howl with with the deep sense of the pain that's going on for them then there has to be those spaces where I can be fed to be able to continue to do this long term. And your own image of God, has that changed over the years? It has. It certainly has changed over the years. I've always had a sense of God's goodness. I think that's that's always been with me. As a, as a young person, I, I very much had a sense of, of God as a protective kind of father figure. I struggled a bit when I went through my parents' divorce and I found that I needed to, to have a bit of a, a different sense of a way of connecting at that stage in my life, although it's, it's not a problem now. And really my spiritual director opened up for me a way of, of connecting at that stage with, with God as friend. But as I've journeyed and um, I'm now, uh, I've taken a private vows of consecrated celibacy myself, um, but working as a lay person. It's just to be called consecrated virgin <laughs> and we have two wonderful consecrated virgins here in, in Ireland, wonderful women. Um, but you have taken a vow of consecrated celibacy, yeah? Not in the formal sense. So I'm not, I'm not what we would call a consecrated virgin as such because mm-hmm. they take, uh, as I understand it, promises of obedience to the bishop. Mm-hmm. I've, I've done it in a private way, so I don't have a formal promise of obedience in, in that sense. So I, I, but you've decided you're going to remain single and be celibate. That's right, yes. Yeah. And you're young. Where, why did you decide that? Well, um, I mean, or did you decide that was it a call? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's where really my image, part of where my image of God shifted, that I had a sense of God and the relationship with God becoming very much one of lover beloved, that there was a very deep sense of a kind of a way of living an intimacy in, in that kind of way. And when I was 32, I had a very powerful experience on a retreat that just gave me a sense of that I was called into this particular way of living my, my faith. And how does that work for you? Does it free you up in a certain way or that allows you to do the kind of work you're doing on a constant basis or or what? Very much so. I mean, I think, you know, I go home in the evening to my own apartment, my own flat, where I have plenty of time to pray and to disconnect with God. I'm living, you know, a life that's intensely engaged with people. I travel a lot. I, I work with people in, in different contexts and we, we go very deep in terms of the trauma stuff. So to have that space to be with God alone in the evenings is, is very life-giving and restoring. Um, and also it, it means I can travel because um, we do a lot of work in the rural areas in South Africa, in different parts of the country and community. So it means that I can at a moment's notice pack my bags and go and give an eight-day retreat or a 30-day retreat or whatever it might be. And do one yourself. Yes. Yeah. And I have two wonderful uh, colleagues, women, one who is married with children. And, and for her, obviously, juggling all of that is a challenge. And then um, there's another another woman who works with us as well. And she specializes really in that in that work in the townships. She speaks 11 of the local languages, which is, which is wonderful. And so, you know, she's able to help in a way that, that reaches many different communities. So your work is challenging, but you have found real meaning and real purpose and real hope for people mm-hmm. that regardless of the trauma and people do experience severe trauma in their lives and at some level, that some way, if you live long enough, you're, never going, you're not going to escape it because even the death of a loved one can be a trauma, that there is healing and there is a 
a way of coming to terms with life that can give us peace. Absolutely. I really believe that. I've seen that. I see it every day. And I feel immensely blessed to be doing the work that I'm doing and to be doing it in the place that I'm doing it, where there is such a need. It's not always easy. I think we, we are certainly grappling on so many different levels with trying to, to rebuild our society, and we're not doing very well at the moment. But when I see the impact on individuals and groups who really do find the space to encounter God and for that to bring that healing, I have great hope.